Last week we looked together at Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation 6, John was shown a vision of the wrath of the Lamb. And it was not a pleasant picture. First of all, John saw four horsemen delivering the restrained wrath of the Lamb throughout history. Through military conquest, through civil war and famine, and the untimely death that all of those things bring. Those in heaven were told the full wrath of the Lamb was being delayed. But chapter 6 ended with that full wrath being poured out finally. John saw the great day of the Lamb's wrath. He saw the whole earth dissolving. He saw the inhabitants of the earth running for cover. And as they ran, they were crying out, Who can stand? That's an important question. In fact, it is the most important question there is. You and I may spend more of our time thinking about other questions, like, why can't I find a girlfriend or boyfriend? Or how can I earn more money? Why can't I find a job that I like? Why is my hair falling out? What should I do with all these years of retirement that I have? Those may be the kind of questions we spend most of our time on. And some of them are significant questions. But none of them are as significant as this one big question. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? The people at the end of Revelation 6 are asking the question too late. God's wrath is already sweeping over them like a tidal wave. They cannot stand. But Revelation 7 is going to show us it doesn't have to be that way. Imagine a split screen in front of you. Last week we saw one side of the screen. The wrath of the Lamb. But this week, we get the other side of the screen. This week, we are shown the mercy of the Lamb. Chapter 7 gives us the alternative to chapter 6. If you haven't already turned there, you'll find it on page 1238, or in the large print, 1920. And I will read the whole of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 
12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. In verse 1, John says, After this I saw. We've come across this expression earlier in the book. And we notice then, it doesn't mean this is what happens next in history. It means this is what I was shown next. And in fact, we know chapter 7 is talking about the same time period as chapter 6. Remember back in chapter 5, the Lamb took the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne. That scroll contains God's plans and purposes for history. Only the Lamb was worthy to open the scroll. And that is what he began to do in chapter 6. In fact, he opened six of the seven seals that were on the scroll. But the last seal will not be opened until chapter 8. So in chapter 7, we know we're not moving forward in time. We're being shown the alternative to what we saw in chapter 6. There we saw wrath. Here we see mercy. We learn that mercy is also part of God's purposes for history. 
In chapter 6, we saw the great day of God's wrath was being delayed. And at the beginning of chapter 7, we see what's happening during that time of delay. So the opening of chapter 7 takes, place, takes us back to before the great day of wrath. We discover that during that time, the people bought by the Lamb are being marked and counted on the earth. Look again at verse 1. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Before we think about the fifth angel, the one who has the seal, notice what we're told about the first four angels. They're standing at the four corners of the earth. Now that does not mean John is looking here at a square earth. This is a way of talking about the four points of the compass. These angels have power to hold back the wind in the north, south, east, and west. Their power extends over the whole world. And these winds that they're holding back are destructive winds. We're told that in verse 2. If the angels stop holding them back, the winds will harm the land and the sea. So apparently these four angels are holding back the destruction we saw at the end of chapter 6. They're holding back the worldwide upheaval that will come on the great day of the Lamb's wrath. Remember, these chapters go side by side like a split screen. So during the time the four horsemen are bringing a small measure of wrath on just a quarter of the earth, These four angels are holding back the full measure of God's wrath. The years of history go by and the final day of wrath is delayed. And it is delayed at the command of this fifth angel, the one who comes with the seal of the living God. Seals were used for making impressions on wax. So we're to think of something like this. Or maybe even a signet ring that makes a mark on wax. Something that stamps God's mark. And this angel says to the other four in verse 3, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Fifth angel says, Don't let God's final earth-dissolving wrath come until I've marked all the servants of God. And if we ask who these servants of God are, they are all those men and women who belong to the Lamb. Back in chapter 5, we heard a new song being sung to the Lamb. And part of the song said this, With your blood you purchased for God from every tribe, Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. So the servants of God being marked by the angel in chapter 7 are all of those purchased by the Lamb's blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. This angel is seeking them out all across the earth. What's the significance of this mark or seal? Well, very simply, it's a mark of ownership. These verses are introducing something that's going to run through the rest of the book. In the visions John sees, everyone has a mark. Everyone. You either have God's mark, or you have the mark of the beast. Now, the mark of the beast will not be mentioned until a bit further on. But what we need to grasp at this point is that everyone is marked. Everyone carries a stamp of ownership. The question is, which mark do you have? God's or the beast's? Maybe we're wondering, well, what, is, what do these marks look like? But remember, these are visions. They're teaching us about unseen realities. So whatever the mark looks like in the vision, its significance is these people are marked for God. They belong to him. So don't go home and look in the mirror for a mark on your forehead. That's not the point here. But if you have come to the Lamb for mercy, acknowledging your sin, trusting in Him alone for forgiveness of your sin, then you can be assured you are marked with the seal of God's ownership. God is never going to make a mistake about you, He's never going to miss you in the crowd. He has marked you as His own. And when the final day comes, he will claim you as his own. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, the Lord knows those who are his. That is the truth John is being shown in this vision. And could there be anything more encouraging than that? Maybe you think that your life is inconsequential. Maybe you wonder some days if people would even notice if you were gone. But if you are a Christian, God not only notices you, he has sought you out. The Son bought you with his own blood. The Father has put his seal of ownership on you. And one day the Father and the Son will claim you as their own. We've seen enough already in this book to know that this seal doesn't mean we're going to be exempt from suffering in this world. But it does mean we will be enabled to persevere through suffering. And we will not face eternal suffering. In the Old Testament, David wrote, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. 
You may be forsaken by many people in this world. But you will never be forsaken by the God who has marked you as his own. We already know that these servants of God are those the Lamb has purchased from every tribe and language and people and nation. So why does John say then in verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Further on in chapter 14, the 144,000 will be referred to as those redeemed from the earth. It's the same word that was translated purchased back in chapter 5. So we know the 144,000 are the same as those bought by the Lamb from every tribe and nation. And so we have to ask again, why is this multinational group described here as being from all the tribes of Israel? Well, remember how God's people began. God didn't start with a people at all. He started with one man, Abraham. And he made a promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Old Testament is largely the record of God keeping the first part of that promise to Abraham, making him into a great nation. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people began with Israel. Israel was the foundation. Now, as we think about why Israel shows up here, it's worth noticing This list of Israelite names in Revelation 7 doesn't actually match any list that's found in the Old Testament. You'll notice that Joseph is here even though there never was a tribe of Joseph. There was a tribe of Dan, but Dan is missing here. Whatever the reasons are for that, it shows us this is not quite the same as the Old Testament tribe. And we also need to be aware, by the time John saw this vision, the twelve tribes no longer existed. The temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. John is writing after that time. And that destruction included all of the temple records that were stored there. All of the genealogical history about whose ancestor came from what tribe. And what that meant was, every year that went by, the tribal lines were getting more and more blurred. When two people married, neither of them knew what tribe they descended from. And there was no way to untangle it all again. So this neat and tidy reference to the twelve tribes is clearly some sort of symbolic reference. If you lined up 144,000 Jews you couldn't figure out what tribe any of them are from. This could not be recreated in reality. And the fact that this number is symbolic is made doubly clear by the number itself. Twelve 
times 12 times 1,000. We've seen earlier in the book the number seven is one way that, we can, that the writer points to completeness. In previous chapters, the seven churches in the province of Asia symbolized the whole church. And here we have another way of talking about completeness. The 12 tribes of Israel times 12 times 1,000. Representing the whole people of God. The complete number of those marked with God's seal of ownership. There are many things in the Old Testament that point forward to a greater reality. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament temple, God was present among his people. But that temple was pointing forward to a place where God would ultimately be with his people, fully in the new heaven and earth. And here the message is that God's Old Testament people, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were pointing forward to the full people of God, made up of all those bought by the Lamb from every people group. And the point is, the complete number tells us everybody who's supposed to be here is here. No one's missing. The full number is assembled. Everyone is present and correct. When God's final roll call is taken, everyone who's supposed to be there will be there. Everyone who's sealed with God's seal will be claimed by God. Not one of his people will be caught in the great day of wrath. When I lived in halls of residence at university, once a term we had a fire drill in the middle of the night. The alarm would go off, we'd all shuffle outside eventually, and someone with a clipboard would mark our names off the list. The drill was counted a success if every name on the list was actually present. That meant if there had really been a fire, no one would have been lost. That's the point of this perfect list here in Revelation 7. It's telling us not only that God knows those who are his, but also that he will never lose any that are his. When the final roll call is taken... Every single one of his people will be accounted for. Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. That's the truth being illustrated by this complete list. And again, could there be anything more encouraging? To know that God never lets any of his people fall through the cracks. The choir around the throne will not be missing even one voice. If you've come to the Lamb for mercy, then he has prepared a place for you in God's presence. And he will make sure you take your place. 
and there are many more still to come. The four angels, the ones holding back the wrath of the Lamb, those angels will not leave their posts as much as a minute early. When they finally stand aside and the wrath falls, it will be because all who are going to come have come. It will be because the role has been taken and every one of God's people is accounted for. And then, after John hears the role being taken, then he sees this in verse 9. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. The people who have been marked and counted on the earth are now shown to us, saved and standing before the throne. In other words, these are the same people John heard in the previous verses. But now he sees them. And it turns out this people of God, which is precisely numbered in God's record book, is actually a vast crowd, more than John can count. We thought earlier about how God made a promise to Abraham and how he began to fulfill that promise in the Old Testament. Now we see the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, blessing has come to all peoples on earth. What has just happened in Revelation 7 is very similar to something that happened back in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5, John heard an announcement. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. But when John turned to look at this conquering king of Israel, he saw a lamb slain for every tribe and nation. And now in chapter 7, John hears in verse 4 the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. But when he looks in verse 9, he sees a great multitude from every tribe and nation. God knows how many there are. That point was made clear earlier. But here the point is, this is a massive crowd. John certainly can't count them. And look what they're doing in verse 9. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Remember the question at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand? Who can escape the wrath of the Lamb? Here's the answer. These people are standing. Why? Is it because... These people are better than others? 
Did they do more for God? Are these the people who achieved religious A stars? No, look what they're singing in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God. He sets the terms of salvation, not us. Salvation is His work, not ours. And this great multitude is also praising the Lamb who carried out the work of salvation. With His blood, His sacrificial death, He purchased a people for God. And these people are now standing in God's presence instead of being swept away by His wrath. The Lamb paid the price. He opened the way. He restrained His own wrath until all of His people came home. If you have come to Jesus as a sinner seeking mercy, then this is your destiny. When judgment day comes, you will not be swept away. You will stand. And you will stand because of the mercy of the Lamb. As this great multitude celebrates God's salvation... Notice the elders and the living creatures join in in verse 12, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is another perfection of praise. We've seen this in a previous chapter. It's made up of seven words of praise. God is receiving, finally, all of the praise he deserves. But one of the elders is just dying to tell John more about this great multitude. He gives John a nudge in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 9 told us the great multitude is wearing white robes. And the elder wants to make sure John knows where the white robes came from. They didn't come from the achievement of the men and women who are wearing them. They're white because of the Lamb's achievement. his triumph over sin and death at the cross. Now obviously, in reality, dipping robes in blood does not make them white. But this is a vision. It's showing us the purity that's required to stand in God's presence comes from trusting in the spotless lamb who was slain in our place. That is the only way you can find purity. From the guilt of your sin. And from the shame of your sin too. Maybe you're crippled by shame over things you've done. 
And of course, you can try to forget about it. You might even have some success sometimes forgetting about it. But only Jesus can actually wash it away. Only Jesus can take your filthy robes and give you pure ones. The elder says these people have come out of the great tribulation. What is he talking about? Well, the word translated tribulation is also translated in the New Testament as trouble or as afflictions or persecution. So, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. It's the same word as here. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So very often in the New Testament, trouble or tribulation describes what God's people face all throughout history. From Jesus' resurrection right through to his return. In fact, the word has already been used that way in Revelation. Back in chapter 2, Jesus told the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions. It could be translated, I know your tribulation." It's clear Jesus was speaking there about something that was happening to Smyrna in the present. Now the New Testament does also assure us there will be a final period of trouble for God's people. But remember, John is looking here at the great multitude. He's looking at the complete people of God from all ages. So it makes sense to understand the great tribulation here as the afflictions God's people suffer throughout history, past, present, and future. Every generation of God's people suffers trouble in this world, just as Jesus promised they would. But none of his people have ever been lost. None of his people ever will be lost. None of them have been abandoned. And none ever will be. They will arrive in God's presence because of the blood of the Lamb. Christians from the first century who suffered under the power of Rome, including many of John's first readers, Christians who suffered in Europe during the time of the Reformation, Christians who suffered under communist rule in the Soviet Union and in Cambodia in the last century. Christians who suffer today in North Korea and Somalia and Iraq and Syria, many, many other places. Until the end, many of God's people will face great tribulation. But they're marked with God's seal of ownership. Every single one of them will be claimed. They will stand before the throne. And notice, that is only the beginning. Verse 15. Therefore, in other words, because these people have been bought with Christ's blood, they are before the throne of God. 
and serve him day and night in his, in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The people bought by the Lamb will be sheltered and satisfied forever. Notice verse 15 says, God's people will serve him day and night. That's been mentioned twice before in Revelation. We have been saved to serve God. But as we read through these verses, we could be forgiven for asking, who is serving who here? We're told that God will shelter us with his presence. All our needs will be provided. We'll never hunger or thirst. The lamb will shepherd us. And the Almighty himself will wipe away our tears. So who is serving who? Who is pouring out blessing on who? Does it look to you like serving God for eternity is going to be a burden for us? David had just a little taste of this bliss on earth. Remember what he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. He said, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And this is the climax of what Psalm 95 talks about. We are the people of his pasture the flock under his care. We can taste some of that care here and now, but the full measure of it is still to come. In this world, we can get some sense of what God's wrath is like, but the great day of his wrath will be more terrible than we can imagine. And equally, we can genuinely experience God's mercy in this world. But his eternal mercy will be more satisfying than we can imagine. So why would we chase after anything else? Why would we look for satisfaction anywhere else? Only the shepherd lamb is able to meet our deepest needs. He is not a careless shepherd. He was slain as the lamb to buy you for God. This shepherd loves his sheep. So if you are holding him at arm's length, come to him in repentance. And you will experience his overflowing mercy.
<clears throat> and if you have forgotten that he's the good shepherd, come back to his shelter. He died for you. He has put his seal of ownership on you. And he hasn't forgotten you. He knows about your sorrow. All of your disappointments. One day he will lead you into his Father's presence and every tear will be wiped away. Every burden will be lifted away. One of the purposes of Revelation is to help us see things as they really are. Things that are now and things that will be later. And so before we sing, let's allow these truths to sink in. These people bought by the Lamb are marked and counted. The Lord knows those who are His. And when the great day of His wrath finally comes, every one of His people will be saved by His grace, standing before His throne. And that will only be the beginning. In His presence, we will be sheltered and satisfied forever. We're going to respond to these truths together now. And we're going to do it by singing, first of all, Amazing Grace.